0: Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is the man who has stood here before inside the pouring rain with the world turning circles, running round his brain. It's his yeah. destiny to be the king of pain. Here's my co-host from the left coast, Wayne Fugate.
1: Paula Ben. I mean...
0: So for this episode, we have a special guest. He's been the longtime drummer for Sister Hazel, who you all, of course, remember their big hit All For You, but they've been turning out music for the last couple of decades. Their most recent release is a collection of the EPs that they've released over the last few years, Earth, Fire, Wind, Water, and it's all packed into an album called Elements. Please welcome to the podcast drummer, Mark Trojanowski.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. It's Awesome.
0: All right. Well, we're excited for this because this is one of our favorite records of all time. So, As it should be. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So the premise of our podcast is fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each podcast episode, we ask the all-important question. I'm going to start with you, Wayne. What t-shirt are you wearing?
1: I'm wearing a uh, Cure uh, Boys Don't Cry.
0: I was... I was almost sure you were going to go purchase a police shirt for this episode. (laughs) Uh,
1: I'm trying to watch my uh, budget during these uh, trying times.
0: I got it. How about you, Mark? What t-shirt are you wearing?
2: I'm actually going off the grid from the music grid and kind of going around the time frame almost of when this record was. I got my old Empire Strikes Back t-shirt on, my favorite Star Wars t-shirt. It came out a little bit before this record, but... It really put me in that time frame. Uh, A lot was going on when I was about that age, so perfectly suited for this podcast.
0: Now, outside of music, po- uh, music T-shirts, I would say that Star Wars T-shirts are hands down are hands down are second. <laughs> Um you are not the first of our guests who has worn a Star Wars related t-shirt. It's been it's been a couple months though since somebody has thrown on a Star Wars shirt, but uh
2: hey, you got the Mandalorian coming back out soon, so you got to get ready for that as well.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm so ready for that. We we the world needs more baby Yoda. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm wearing a shirt that's not even closely related as well, Wayne. So I'm wearing my Bob Mould Sunshine Rock t-shirt again. So has n- nothing to do with the police or Sister Hazel or any of that. So I probably should have borrowed one of my friend's uh, Florida Gators football t-shirts. He's got like a whole wardrobe of them. I should should have asked him to 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 let me borrow one of those shirts i thought
2: your wife's a big gator fan
0: she is so we we've been in florida uh we moved back here about 20 years ago i married a gators fan so we've been to the swamp many times and um but i have to ask you this so the so the band heralds themselves is discovering one another in gainesville but did did i read correctly that you're not a gator
2: that is correct. That I'm the only one in the band that doesn't have a UF degree. Um, it's pretty interesting, though, because I went to uh, University of North Texas out in Denton. It's a big jazz percussion music school. And um, funny, Ryan, our guitar player, was there at the same time. But the school was so big, so many musicians, we didn't even know each other. We were in the same dorm, hung out with the <laughs> same people, and then he went to Berkeley from there cause he didn't really, um, you know, North Texas wasn't his cup of tea. He went to Berkeley for a couple of years and then he went to UF and ended up getting a, an accounting degree. And then when we, I got into the band first and then he came in and then we started talking and it was just so crazy that we hung out with all the same people, but we just never hung out at school. So crazy stuff
0: that that's crazy so so how did you get introduced to the rest of the guys that were in Gainesville then
2: I was living in Orlando at a buddy's house um I was playing a couple cover bands and playing a bunch of jazz shows and also doing theme parks I had just come off working on cruise ships for about nine months and was getting ready to either move to LA or, or Nashville and um just saving money and playing shows and um he had gone to high school um, in Gainesville and knew a bunch of these guys and um, also was playing in a bunch of bands up there. And there was a lot of bands coming out of Gainesville at that time. There was a big uh, band called Four Squirrels that had a tragic car accident. They were on Sony 550, but they were like kind of the next coming of REM. And um, there was another band that he was playing in called What It Is. And so, and then there's Less Than Jake. So a lot of bands were getting signed from Gainesville and, And these guys just started having a following and he said, you should go check it out before you move out of town. And so I kind of got a demo tape and went up there and auditioned and um, sort of got asked to be in the band. And then I said, well, you know, before I move, you know, maybe I'll do this because it wasn't really what I think was thinking my career path was be, I wanted to kind of be a side musician and go play pop R and B music for some big act like Michael Jackson or Madonna. That was kind of my, dream at the time. So uh an original rock band was so far removed from what I was thinking and got in there in the summer of ninety five and by November of ninety six we had a record deal and uh pretty crazy ride.
0: Yeah. Were you were you on that original record I that they put no, out? I didn't
2: I didn't play on the white record. Ryan yeah. was on that record as a solo art. I could guess he played a couple solos but we, the same five guys have been in the band since January of 96 and, you know, starting with somewhere more familiar as we released it as an indie, it's been the same five guys.
0: And that's unheard of these days.
2: Yeah. Pretty unheard of.
0: Yeah. That, uh, that, that speaks volumes of the, the caliber of, of folks that you're playing with.
2: And just being able to deal with relationships and understanding every, everyone. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it took. Some time to work through that in the early couple of years, but then, you know, things have been really great, you know, because everyone kind of has their own little niche of what they do and what they bring to the table. And everyone kind of respects that and admires that and lets them kind of do their thing.
0: Very cool. Yeah, you guys are one of the few bands that the Misses and I can agree on. Well, that's good. I'm glad we, yeah. we fill some void for some people. Yeah, exactly. I think I've seen you guys, I don't know, four or five times. Uh, I know we've seen you a couple times at uh, the Epcot Food and Wine Festival at Disney, which you guys are you guys are usually a staple there, right? You play there yeah,
2: we did just it pro- about every year? We did it like 10 straight years, and then they moved us to the spring with uh, the garden festival that they do in the spring. So yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy because uh, my son was born like in April of 2008 and we had been going every year since. So he's super spoiled because he's been to Disney like, um, like 11 straight years. So, (laughs) but, uh, it's a good time. We, I mean, even before we were doing that, we had a great relationship with them. Um, when we, um, we played a bunch of new year's shows there. We played, um, with Rick Springfield and we used to do, um, whatever Coronado Springs used to be called, what did that used to be called? Uh, um, oh, downtown yeah. Disney. Yeah. There we used go. to play there a bunch as well in the day before, um, we started playing the food and wine festival, but Orlando has been huge for us. I mean, we play house of blues a bunch too. Usually I think if, if everything goes okay, we're supposed to play there in September, but we shall see.
0: Fingers crossed. Yes. Cause, cause I need some live music.
2: Well, it's been a long sabbatical. We never yeah. have off this much.
0: Right, right. Uh, so when I told a few friends that you were coming on uh, on the podcast and I said, uh, you know, hey, what are your thoughts on on Sister Hazel? So a couple people said, well, we liked everything they didn't until they went country. And I'm like, what? So I, I, I get that, you know, you guys – had hinted a little bit with country and you know, you did the song with cold Ford and you've, you've played at the Opry. Um, but we like, we just had Maggie Rose on the podcast a few weeks ago and she's played the Opry like 60 times, but yet she doesn't consider herself a country artist. I mean, Wayne, what, did, what did she call herself? Her genre? I, I Like Roots roots Rock or something like that is what she called it?
1: Yeah, well,
2: I think for us, you know, a good way to answer that is kind of like, we have always been making Sister Hazel music, and if you kind of listen to somewhere more familiar and you kind of just drop, you know, that into your player today, um, I would say that it sounds like anything that's on the four EPs, and even today people would consider All For You a country song. It's not going to get played on pop radio. It's not going to get played on rock radio. And I think for us, we were always, you know, we come with five different backgrounds in music to start with. You know, you have um, Ken, who, you know, really kind of grew up in a lot of the heavy metal bands and rock stuff, but also liked some of the singer-songwriter stuff. And him and Drew always kind of got, you know, they were the indigo guys, the two of them with their harmonies. Um, and Drew always right. kind of liked James Taylor and, um, a lot of, um, that kind of, uh, music kind of coming up the Eagles. Um, you know, Ryan, you know, was definitely into Almond brothers and a lot of blues guitar type of things. Um, our bass player jet is a big Beatles fan. And for me, you know, my early background was strictly jazz music until, you know, when we we're talking about listening to these police records and, you know, early on I was listening to. Start strictly big band at first at this point, you know, uh, Count Basie and Harry James and Woody Herman. Um, And and then I started getting turned into Billy Joel and then The Police and then some Who stuff and then Steely Dan. But um, so it's five diverse kind of backgrounds of musical styles. And when it comes together, you know, it's something that's really, really different. And I think that when we're writing songs and playing, there's a mesh of different musical genres in our music and so you know we went through different phases to try different things whatever but it was always about the song um and how we best suit the song and so i think a lot of the stuff we're doing now is just kind of going back to being more what some somewhere more familiar was more organic more like instruments that are acoustic driven whether they be banjo or dobro ryan can play anything with strings on it so and, then, uh, and, you know, our radio format, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, all through that time period, that went away. You know, adult AC, hot AC. So there yeah. was really when people have to put a genre on, you when you list a, a record in iTunes or whatever you're going to put it out in, you have to put a genre. And they started doing that. But, like, a bunch of our, our Lighter After the Dark record and then a bunch of the uh, EPs, the uh, EPs they were all they all charted on like americana, they charted on rock, they charted on country because again, we're kind of this chameleon like bam. If you go see a live show, you're not going to say like, "Hey, that's a country band.
0: Right. Yeah, I I really dig what you guys did with the 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 Elements EPs. Those were those were a lot of fun um I really dig the song, the title song Elements. So, so tell the listeners what you guys did for that song, for the, the final product. Cause I really, I really dug the concept of what, what you guys came up with for that.
2: Yeah. And let me go back a little bit before. So people that might not know about these EPs. So yeah, um, we had just come off of making lighter in the dark, which took a bunch of years to make that record for a multitude of reasons. And, and we really enjoyed making that record. And so we got back in the studio and it was like, we knocked out two songs really quick. And there's always been this model like, hey, you know, we need to put a 12 song record out. It needs to be exactly right. Let's record 14 or 15 songs. And then you get into the whole equation of, well, whose songs are we going to put on the record and how are we going to vote on it? And so, you know, after we got those two songs and everyone really dug the recording process, it was like, why don't we just knock out six quick and just make a commitment to, we're going to put four records out. And, and then our bass player kind of came up with the concept of joining them together. And so initially he was trying to have us all like write a 60 second song just to kind of use it as a musical challenge of being able to be creative. And, and we were trying to find a way to kind of join all the records together. And so In that process of writing that song, that's kind of how we each record ends with sort of a 60-second song that when the next record starts with that song, it kind of picks up from that point, and then all four of them are kind of joined together. So we were looking for a way to cohesively do that. We had tried a couple other different things, but that's kind of how it landed, and it really was a great way for a bunch of songs that didn't make a lot of earlier records that were in our catalog that were unrecorded for us to get them out. And it also was a way to keep the inspiration and creativity going. And also everyone in the band writes. So everyone was going to get their chance to get a song on a record if they had songs. So it was a great creative, motivational thing for everyone and great for the fans, you know, I think live bands also need new music to kind of keep things fresh, so it was kind of a win-win for everyone. Of
3: pain. Cause it's ready, aim, fire, not ready, fire, aim Gotta learn another, learn another, learn another way Tell what I'm doing, but I do it anyway Get a head start on a new highway
0: up to do still. we we just recorded an episode a couple weeks ago f- about abbey road mm-hmm. and so i kind of felt like uh, element elements was kind of your long one um there's except i i don't think you had any mean mean mr mustard or polythene pan within your um within your song which is a good thing <laughs> So I, I, I love the concept. I, I think because uh, uh, the first time I heard it, I was like, this is kind of like a rock opera that I'm listening to. And then I, then I read an article about what you guys did and I'm like, Oh, that makes total sense.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, and initially we were trying to do something where each record would have parts of a song. Um, and then when you actually got the last record, you would hear how all the parts came together,
0: but
2: maybe that's for another time and day. We just weren't able to figure that
0: out. Yeah, it's cool. So um, there's some great drumming on elements. So what are the Sister Hazel songs that you as a drummer look most forward to playing in a live, live situation?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I think that, for me, it changes over time a little bit. I mean, I think the constant one that's always fun to play has been Champagne High. Um, I kind of remember that song kind of came into the band at the end of the, um, the cycle of touring for somewhere more familiar. And we had that song. um, We probably just finished the somewhere more familiar touring cycle. And I remember kind of working through the parts in Andrew's house and, it, you know, I think that's the, been the coolest thing for me is just having the creative freedom of when the guys in the band bring a song in, and then they kind of, over the years, it's kind of morphed a little bit. People have a little bit more production ideas, and we can kind of talk a little bit about that on the Synchronicity record because I think it's very similar to what went on with Sting a little bit. But um, I think still, you know, I get to put my stamp on it. Um, at the end of the day, you know, the songwriter might have. A vision of what they're looking for, um, but uh, you know that song is always fun to play every single night. I think on the Chasing Daylight record, there was a couple of really cool things on there, too, as well. Um, We don't play this song much anymore, but there was a song called Killing Me Too. um, that was very U2-esque, and I know you guys did a Matt Act Actong Baby uh, podcast.
0: Yes, we did.
2: And so that was uh, a really cool making that track because the drum track was like triple tracks. Um, I went in and recorded like one pass that was kind of just the Tom groove and then another pass that was kind of the cymbal and overlying groove. And then there was like the bottom kick snare hat kind of groove. And so that was always fun to play live because it would have some of those extra element tracks going on and kind of play around all of that stuff. And just um, for me, as I kind of grew in the band, I think I, played a lot more stuff. Like Stuart Copeland was definitely a huge influence on me um, from early on. I loved his playing, and, and he has a very – I wouldn't call it jazz because he grew up in the Middle East with his brother Miles, and so he has a lot of Caribbean and Middle East flavor. But it's kind of how sort of jazz contemporary fusion guys would play, a lot of simple stuff, a lot of hi stuff. And so early on, I think some are more familiar – And the Fortress record, you know, there was a lot of that stuff. But I think this record, in particular with the Synchronicity record and then a lot of Carrie Arnoff records, they kind of had to kind of rediscover, like, you know, how to play a pop song and, and just like less is more fit the song and do stuff to like make different sections pop out. And so I think for me, it's always fun playing live, you know, playing different songs, like playing. Champagne High is a song I get to kind of stretch out on a little bit, but you know it's also from the same playing from the same record, Life Got in the Way. Ken wrote that song with Richard Marks, and that's just a, a really cool driving song. Um, but then we have some of the newer songs, like Shame is a really cool uh, part that one of my friends from college came in, and we did that song with a symphony many years ago, and he wrote a whole kind of middle jam section that is all written out for like orchestra. And so we still do that section live and that's kind of fun because there's a lot of hits and unison stuff. So I I think some songs being complex are fun to play, but it's just as fun to play a really simple groove oriented song and being able to just lay down the pocket.
0: Yeah. First time I saw you guys live was on the, um, on that, uh, tour back in 97, 98, and you guys were uh, contributing Gold Dust Woman to the Rumors tribute record. Yeah, yeah. Do you get? Do you guys still do that song at all?
2: Now and then we'll pull that out. Um, that was a that was an awesome experience. Um, we did that down at Criteria down um, in South Florida, and again that was a huge record for a lot of us in the band. I kind of came to it late, um, but uh, I think. You know, trying to put our spin on that record, still pay tribute to the original um, Paul Ebersole, who produced uh, Somewhere More Familiar and Part of Fortress, was there. And he's he's just a great musician and had a lot of cool inspirational things to bring to that, you know, to try to still keep it like Mick would play it, but then really kind of bring some John Bonham-like kind of backward stuff in some of the sections. Yeah. So that was a fun track to play because... Um, you know, it was one of those where it's different, you know, when you're playing your own stuff and you're creating your own stuff, but now you have to play a cover song, but play a cover song completely different and put it on your own spin. So that, that was a little of a challenge.
0: Yeah. And, and Mick always does a bunch of stuff you, you were talking about, you know, the hi hats and the cymbals and all that good stuff. And he's, you know, he uses everything.
2: Yeah. Well, and you know, we became really good friends also with Stan Lynch from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, obviously, oh, here cool, from yeah, Gainesville. And Stan, over the years, has worked a bunch with the band on different production stuff. And he's another guy where if you go in and listen to those records and really focus on what's going on with the drums, but then how he... And he's another guy that really got me thinking about, you know, play for the song, make the song better, Um, and so when you get a chance to play a fill, make it memorable, but, you know, really kind of elevate the different sections in the song. And so, um, you know, when you listen to a lot of his records that they, you know, he did with the Heartbreakers, you know, he's got some super tasteful playing, some great grooves. And, um, and uh, and so that, that's just had me thinking a lot differently over the years of how to best support the song and the band.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there's a song of your guys' called Karaoke Song. If you get the words wrong,
3: everybody needs a go-to karaoke song. best version of free bird tonight is by Tattoo Dave with a little help from his wife. They're singing, don't stop believing, don't stop believing Everybody needs a go-to karaoke song They want to make you sing along Take a sip of courage and just get up on that stage Forget about your worries and just let the music play Spotlight on. It don't matter if you get the words wrong.
0: Everybody needs to It's on the lighter in the dark album that you and you did that song with Darius Rucker. Yeah. You sing it all you sing it all?
2: I do not sing. That is the one thing that I do not do in the band.
0: So I was gonna ask what's your go-to karaoke song?
2: Yeah, that would not be me, but I could give you a funny story about that.
0: <laughs> Let's do it.
2: Um so we're on um, the Summer More Familiar tour, and it's probably near in the middle or somewhere near the end of the tour. And we're on the West Coast, and those were kind of the uh, after show party years of the bands. And um, <laughs> so we're in some like Eugene, Oregon, um, who knows, like Holiday Inn uh, lounge at night after the show. And so um, the crews down there and, and maybe a couple of the band guys and, and, and Ken said, our release singer said he was going to make it down there at some point. So they found that all for you was like one of the songs that was in the, the Rolodex of karaoke songs. Oh no. So, so, you know, there's a bunch of (laughs) older people at the time in the holiday in lounge singing karaoke songs and Tony Bennett and stuff. And, you know, they take it pretty serious. And, um, So we're all just down there, you know, chilling out, having a couple drinks. And so Ken finally makes it into the lounge and he's there for maybe one or two songs. And then they go, all right, coming up next, uh, Ken Block. And he's going to sing a song called All For You from Sister Hazel. And so so he gets up on the stage and he starts to say something to the people and the microphone's not working. And it's like a little Radio Shack microphone that has a little on-off switch on it. And the guy comes up to him and says, oh, you probably don't know how to do this or you haven't done much of this before. And so, so then he finally <laughs> figures it out and gets in there. And then he starts to sing the song. And, you know, people were kind of, you know, who's this new guy or whatever? And, you know, and then um, he gets a little bit further in and then people are starting to recognize him because at that point we have done a bunch of Regis and Kelly. We might have done Conan by that point already. And so, you know, people in the bar had kind of figured out that who he was because he was killing the song. So, um, uh, yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs>
0: that, that's, that's awesome. That's he awesome. wasn't
2: too happy at the time that we made him do that, but it was all right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so with all the craziness of our world, um, so you guys have been doing the rock boat for like what, 20 years now?
2: Yeah, we just had the 20th anniversary. So, um, that's another amazing ride for people that don't know what that is that we're talking about. Um, so right after the Summer more familiar tour, um, we had so many fans that we really appreciated over that year and a half, two years on the road. And we had some people that just came on the road for one summer and followed us around. They, that's how the hazelnuts kind of became known. Um, uh, they, okay. they followed us all around that summer. We had, we're on tour with the Almond Brothers and a couple other people. And so we wanted to do something cool for the fans for saying thank you from taking us out of Gainesville across the United States and getting a platinum record and our song on the radio. So we said we're going to go do like uh, a couple shows on a cruise ship for a party. And we um, another band at the time, Dexter Freebish, was on the same management company as us. And so oh, yeah. 750 people showed up for that the first time. 20 years ago and then our manager kind of came back into us, you know, right after that and said, "I think we might have something here like let's let's try to make this bigger." And so, you know, it took us a couple of years to figure it out. You know, we, you know, had a bunch of different bands and so the whole concept was to try to make a music festival, let's see, kind of creating that Woodstock kind of vibe, but for people at the time, there was no Facebook and there was no social media. We had tons of message boards and that's how we communicated with people. And it was just like this whole community that really was starving for new live music and for bands that were touring. And so, you know, we, we, over the years we had better than Ezra and we had tonic and, um, collective soul and Pat McGee and, Recently, we've had you know, I know you've had Red Wanting Blue on the show, they've been on yeah. there a, mon- a bunch of times and need to breed. And so, we'll hope it's just become this whole community vibe thing. And, you know, early on, it took bands, you know, like begging them to check it out and come on because they were like, I'm gonna be trapped on a cruise ship with all these fans and this is crazy. <laughs> um, but like, after I don't know, somewhere around year eight or whatever, our manager came back to us and said, like, Hey. You know, I want to start a business doing this. Like I think I've taken you guys as far as I can as a manager. And and so, you know, now he has a whole company in there. You know, there's the Kid Rock Cruise and the Kiss Cruise and a Singer Songwriter Cruise called the Kayamo and then the Outlaw Country. And now they're doing cruises yeah. in Europe. So it really just took a life of its own, but there's still only one rock boat. Like you could go on some of these other cruises, but it's nothing like the rock boat. I mean, the rock boat started with music going in the early years before anyone knew who Zach Brown was, Zach Brown was playing in the elevators of a cruise ship for three years up and down with his band at four in the morning. And you had Edwin McCain standing on the bar, uh, you know, go ahead and doing all kinds of speeches at three o'clock and music going on until eight in the morning. And so, you know, people have called it spring break for adults.
0: There you go. Well, I'm, I hope with, uh, with everything going down in the world that this doesn't completely knock out cruise ships from the, the, the ecosystem, so to speak. So
2: yeah, it's who knows, you know, what the next year is going to hold, you know? Um, I think once they do have a vaccine that everything will sort of go back to normal, but I think none of us can really predict the future until then.
0: No, exactly. So, so I hear that uh, your guitarist Ryan Newell. So he's going to be a guest on the Tune Styles podcast. They're, uh, they're podcast friends of ours. Uh, so, so listeners, please make sure you go listen to Ryan's episode as well. Uh, so, what are you guys promoting besides Elements? I think this is this is probably the time that we need to talk about your your GoFundMe that uh, that you guys are doing.
2: Yeah, we 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 put a GoFundMe out because. Um, a lot of our crew members have been with us for many, many years. Um, um, some guys have been with us for over 10 years and loyalty, they don't work for any other bands. And, you know, we've gotten to a point now where, um, you know, we don't work all, I mean, we work all year long, but we're not like doing a hundred or 200 shows anymore just because everyone has family. So, you know, our crew is still loyal to us. And so, you know, they can't really work any way now either, you know, because there's no local shows as well. They can't go out with another artist. Um, and so, you know, they have no way of really generating income. So we put a GoFundMe out for our fans just to kind of get those crew guys paid for a while because they have no way of generating um, income right now from what they do. Um, I think, you know, we've, we're have we getting close to meeting the goal. I think we had put down a $20,000 uh, goal. And I think we're somewhere above 17 or 18 now. I haven't looked at it in a couple days. So, but, um, all the proceeds definitely go to them. Um, like I said, you know, Kurt Pfister, our production manager, he's been with us since like 2001. Um, and then, you know, our guitar tech just kind of came back. He was with us for many years, went out with Kiggs and Leon and then kind of came back. So, um, it's like a family, you know, you live on a bus together for, 90 shows a year and you spend all the time on there and you know, spend all these years together and we love those guys and you know, definitely want to make sure that they are taken care of.
0: Yep, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll share the, we'll share the link on our, on our socials as well. I, I donated 15 bucks today. I know it's not much, but I'm. Appreciate that. I'm, definitely trying to help more of our musician guests because the industry definitely needs all of our backing right now. So,
2: yeah, well, we're talking about figuring out a way to do something band wise. We haven't figured it out just yet, but, um, there, there are talks in the works. If we can't get to play here anytime soon, you know, we're definitely going to, we're going to be the first ones to do something. I think we're going to come out with something, you know, we, we're talking about it, figuring out the technology and, um, we definitely want to uplift people that are kind of been in a down space for a while and who knows when concerts will be allowed again, but, um, yeah. we've been doing, you know, everyone has been doing a lot of the Facebook stuff and the Instagram stuff, but, um, we want to do a little bit more than that. So we're, we're going to work hard to come up with something that I think everyone will really appreciate and enjoy. And, um, you know, I've been last week I put out, uh, a zoom, I did a zoom cocktail hour on, Friday evening. So, um, which I kind of like personally better. Um, I'm always been the, since the inception of the band, I always like ownership. Um, I hate like other people owning our data and controlling things and not knowing if your post is going to go out or whatever. So,
0: um,
2: you know, zoom was cool because got to interact with people, you know, it's like you can interact to some degree with Facebook live and Instagram, but you're just getting little, emojis back or getting a couple of quick notes. I mean, it's nice to actually have someone pop on the screen and get to talk to them. And so that's kind of, I think, a format moving forward that I think you're going to see a lot more of. Um, Even for us, we were even talking about like, we don't get a chance to really go overseas a bunch. And there's people telling us to come to Australia and Brazil. So I think technology is at a point now where we can maybe do some of that stuff virtually and not just yeah. be a concert, but be more interactive.
0: There you go. Wayne, you got anything for Mark before we transition over the record?
1: No, I'm ready.
0: You're ready. All right. This is our transition question from interview portion to the record that you choose. Uh, so um, Toto's Africa, good or bad song? Great song. Okay. And uh some, some good percussion in that one, right?
2: Yeah. You want another funny story about that song?
0: Absolutely. We love stories.
2: <laughs> all right. When a band first goes on a road and you're kind of an opener, um, you're the rookies and so you know, when you go out, you get practical jokes all the time because, you know, it's like being a rookie in any sporting situation. You know, you get pranked and whatever. So You know, once we got past that phase, we we enjoyed being the prankster instead of of the one being pranked. So we had a summer-long tour with Gavin DeGraw and um, Virginia Coalition. And so there was all kinds of stuff going on on that tour. And and we got the best of all those guys many, many times because we also had unlimited budget. So we could do whatever we wanted to do. So um, we're in Dallas and... They, one of the bands, Virginia Coalition, used to play Africa every night. Um, And so we went out that day and we got a full on like gorilla costume and then got a whole bunch of like Indian costumes and uh, (laughs) weapons and all kinds of stuff. And so uh, I got to be in the gorilla. So that was awesome. And so (laughs) they started (laughs) playing that song and they pretty much just took over the whole um club and stage and everything and all these animals coming out on stage and me in the gorilla costume and and then being chased around by people in war paint and stuff so it it was it was great it was that was uh just a a tad bit of the hazing that they had to deal with for three months
0: i was gonna say how much alcohol was involved in that
2: (laughs) uh probably a little bit
0: yeah okay
2: But they learned a lot of lessons, you know, they were still in the van and trailer. And so one of the first lessons that we taught them in Philadelphia is you never leave your van and trailer open, you know, because someone might steal yeah. your gear or someone might put a piece of fish in your engine compartment and you have to figure it
0: out. Oh, no. That's, <laughs> no. All right. So
2: they, never, they never left their doors open anymore, though. So it was a I good bet. lesson.
0: Yeah, there you go. Lesson learned. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll tell our listeners what record you chose for this episode.
2: I chose uh, the police record Synchronicity.
0: Perfect. Uh, this was uh, released in June of 1983, sold over 8 million copies. This this is included in the top 500. We talk about this all the time, Wayne, the the Rolling Stone top 500 records of all time. Any guesses on where this lands in the top five hundred?
2: How are they basing that?
0: Oh, it's all random. It's it's just a bunch of critics who are yeah. like, "This what is my favorite."
2: So it's not based on sales or anything like that.
0: No, Nope. no. Nope.
2: Yes, yeah, so if it was based on that, it'd be a lot higher.
1: Yeah, if I if I remember, I think all the critics that are included get pick like fifteen or twenty, 20 their favorite twenty albums, and then they. Point it and calculate it out like that
2: yeah I would probably say uh, I, I think he's probably right I would say between 200 and 250
0: so this is 448 Wow wow and any guesses on the highest police record which one do you think the critics chose
2: um, say
1: more.
0: Uh f- number 42028 for Atlanta Stanmore.
1: Was that the highest?
0: No, Ghost in the Machine highest at number
1: 323.
0: Really? Hmm. Yeah. Which is my least favorite police record.
2: Yeah, it's uh
0: not by much, but it is my least favorite record.
2: It's got one of my favorite songs though and we used to cover that song for many many years. Um, Which one? Every little thing she does is magic. Oh, okay. Um you know that's a good talking point for both of these records though because um, they were both recorded in Montserrat um, so there was a lot of history there of both of the records and um, I think Hugh was the producer on both of them too possibly
0: yeah yeah
2: um, so very very similar but also very different in that um, you know if you watch the documentary like I'm a huge police fan so and I when they came back together, uh, on that reunion tour. I went to go see that in Tampa actually. and um, you know, but I, there was a documentary around the same time and you, you could definitely see all of that stuff that was going on in the documentary. And then specifically on this record, um, and I, I kind of touched upon it earlier, like, you know, Stewart and, and Andy definitely seemed to have a lot more freedom on the earlier records. And I think even a lot of their, um, clips in a documentary talk about how sting brought a lot of these songs in like completed, like it wasn't just like acoustic guitar right. vocal. Like he had specific things of what he wanted and, um, which kind of took a little bit of the creativity out of what was going on. Um, you know, in prior years of how Stewart may have approached a song. I think between ghost in the machine and this record, you also see a change and the band's philosophy, like there was a lot more keyboards and syn- uh, synthesizers and sequencers going on in Ghost and Machine, where they kind of brought it back to um, a lot more of the three of them playing, even though there was a lot of overdubs and layers, there wasn't a lot of like synth kind of um, things going on like there was on Ghost and Machine.
0: Yeah, the overdubs were more on the percussion side to kind of keep it.
2: And the guitar.
0: A little, like, little more reggae tinged, right?
2: Yeah. Well, and I mean, like I said, I'm a huge fan of this band, really go deep on them. And like, I really think that Andy's guitar tones and stuff, uh, I mean, I have never really sat and listened to interviews with Edge at all, but I mean, you listen to a lot of the guitar tones on this record and the delays. Um, that wasn't really going on in a lot of other music, a lot of other bands that I can remember in the time I mean, I was 13 when this record came out. But, um, I really think that Andy had an effect, uh, a lot on edge, like how he created his parts, because that's the one thing that really hit to me. And even as I go back, when I went back and listened to this record, as I started to get deeper and deeper into music, like the one thing that. The Ghost of Machine and Synchronicity record did was their parts, like every section, whether it's a guitar or a drum or what Sting's doing on the bass, like these little parts for each section is what makes these songs great.
0: Yep, agreed. And
2: yeah. a lot of bands and a lot of musicians, I feel today, don't really get that concept of, and that was something that Stan Lynch really brought to us as a band working through the lighter and the dark stuff. Cause he helped with a lot of the pre-production and all these little parts work together and you don't need a bunch of everyone playing the same stuff or too much going on because if like one person is playing rhythm and the other person is playing rhythm. Those two should cohesively work together. And I think that that's what you really hear on this record.
0: Yeah. Great. Um, so this was nominated for album of the year. You guys know who he who they lost to, right?
2: Um I'm not sure of that year. Yeah, that's
1: I know I read that.
0: Just Michael recently. Jackson thriller.
2: thriller. Well, yeah. if you're gonna get beat, that's probably a good record yeah. to get beat by
0: that's a good okay. one to get beat. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: yeah. The other nominees, so this was this was interesting to me. So the other nominees, Let's Dance, David Bowie, which is a good album. Innocent Man, Billy Joel, good album. The other nominee was the Flashdance soundtrack? Wow, <laughs> yeah that that one kind of floored me a little bit. It's a different time. It was a different time, yeah. All right, uh, well let's let's start going through track by track. Talk about this. Um, as a reminder, our scoring is going to be based on number of songs on the record. Wayne, how many songs on this record? Eleven which means our top song is going to get 11 points. Nick's favorite 10 points on Dan to lowest score of one. So we're going to do something a little bit different for this episode. So I kind of threw this out to our listeners and said, um, so you guys seem to be passionate about this record. You guys want to do the, uh, the records revisited home edition version. And so we've got nine people who also scored this this record and so we'll uh we'll give some shout outs and uh look at their scores as well in addition to our own so we'll we'll see how this goes this is trial run on the home edition version so all right there you go all right so first song synchronicity one guys do any research as to what synchronicity is
1: uh, a little bit i read a couple things here and there
0: what what do you got
1: oh uh, the whole you know everything's happening at the same time it's not it's loosely linked or um, like i'd say this some of the great lines in this was the uh, what is it connecting principle linked to the Link invisible to the invisible you know, everything is Somehow, I think it's a much bigger... Like this one, the song lyrics in and of themselves, I think, are kind of explaining what it is to a degree.
2: Yeah, well, I think a lot of the stuff in the liner notes also talk about, like, you know, Sting wrote a lot of this record while he was living in Jamaica and there was like, you know, Britain had gone to war with Argentina or the Falklands and, you know, there was some book that was published about apparent coincidences and stuff like that, so... You know, I think he was definitely uh, getting deeper into what was going on in the world and other things around him as well at the time. So I think that, um, you know, he's always kind of been a really good lyricist. And I think that, you know, his isolation there on Jamaica, he started just thinking about a lot of different things.
0: Yeah. And so for my 13 or 14 year old brain trying to wrap my head around this concept, I was like, Okay, so is synchronicity like multitasking.
1: <laughs> I think multitasking wasn't even a thing when we were thirteen.
0: Well, I don't know. I, I mean, like, is this playing Atari while I'm drinking a Slurpee at the same time? That's kind of the. That, that's kind of how I'm looking at it. So.
1: And I always looked at it more like butterfly effect. Like one thing happens here, and then somehow it 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 causes a reaction that's somehow connected to something that would seem completely. Unconnected, further apart. The further away you get from the center, the the less you can see the connection, but the connection is there nonetheless.
0: Yeah. Uh, what do you guys think about this song as an opener?
1: I think it's. I think you got to. I mean, it, for one reason. I mean, musically, I think it sets the tone. It's got a. It's got a lot of the kind of the world rhythms and even a little bit of the jazzy stuff that they're going to do here. But I mean, the title "Synchronicity." What better way to come out of the gate with and explain synchronicity.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great opening, up tempo song that uh, is perfect way to start a record. I think that uh, you know it, that that song I think kind of gives that unabashed what they kind of were as you know, if you want to call them a punk band at some point in their early days, um, you know, it's more refined, but that's just kind of them just going for it, you know, and you can definitely. That was you know one of the songs I felt like Stewart got to play a little bit more on you know he was always famous for playing a lot of really cool things on the ride cymbal, on the bell of like just weird rhythms. like he never would kind of play the same kind of thing over and over. It would be just a little bit different. and I, like I said, I think that's a lot of his middle Eastern drum upbringing. Um, but it was just you know a powerful up-tempo kind of rock and song, so I think it was a great way to start the record out.
0: And how many times did you practice to this song?
2: A ton of times, you know, I I think, you know, but as I, you know, at the time, you know, radio was so huge that that song did get played a bunch, but as we get further on, there were so many I mean, this song, this record had so many songs that were played on the radio. It's like, as you go in, oh, that's on that record? Oh, that's on that record? And it's like, yeah, it was, it was a, huge and not only that like mtv was big right so oh, yeah. you know at that point i would probably say five of these songs had massive mtv videos as well so yeah. um there was just a lot of exposure
1: and i and sting's presence on mtv is what is the reason mark Knopfler wanted to use him in in money for nothing because he was, wow. he was like the voice of mtv it felt like they were police videos on almost non yeah.
2: Well, and the videos for this um record were really out there too. I mean, yeah. maybe not for like what the rest of the 80s, like I said, I was 13, but like when you go back and and what they were wearing, I mean, I mean this opening track, they got something like out of the Terminator that they were wearing, um like all these jaggedy clothes and things like that and Sting looks almost wasn't he he was in Dune, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, And he was so he villain.
2: almost looks like, I don't know when he did that, but like, um, his hair and the way it was set up in this uh, video looks very similar to how he was, um, in that movie.
0: I think you're thinking of the video for synchronicity you, too. You
2: know what? I think I am. I think I am.
0: Yeah. 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 Cause there, cause that was kind of like a little bit of a post apocalyptic.
2: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Cool. I got them backwards. You're right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That would be two. We'll talk about that here in, in, in a second. All right, let's get some scores on this. Mark, what was your score on this?
2: My score on this one was an eight.
0: And then Wayne? Five. And this is my seven. And then looking at our uh, our listeners, so uh, Tom Hershey gave this a 10. That was the, <laughs> the highest rating of of anyone yeah. on And well, there's a couple nines too. Bud Verge and Steve Howard also gave this gave this a nine. So um, no can do. Yeah. Uh, All right. Next song: "Walking in Your Footsteps." Not one of our favorite songs on the record, but st- I still dig it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I well, yeah. Good. Song still, some really
0: race. cool stuff.
2: Yeah, well, and and then you know I had some some perspective on this now too after kind of re-listening and and also um, you guys familiar with his first solo record, Dreaming of Blue Turtles?
1: Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Um,
2: so I kind of think like there was a lot of hints of what he wanted to do on this record already going into that. Like, even in this song, like, it's like, where's the band even in the song, you know, it's like, he kind of brought this in and I wouldn't be surprised if he already had that kind of jungle beat and this, you know, had that sequence and Stewart was hardly even part of the process because it just seems like he wanted to do something different and this is what it was. Um, But as we go on, you can, I'll I'll have some other references where you can definitely hear where he was going. Like if you can reference songs off that first solo record, um, there's songs on this record that sound very similar to what was going on in his head on the solo record.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I saw that four or five times just like that to me on this one. What got me is it sounded a lot like the stuff that Peter Gabriel was doing. Um, with that, with those, with those African beats and stuff, which,
0: yeah, like but, Biko.
1: Yeah. But that's the, that was what killed me is after, I mean, when you're kind of com- being compared to a song like Biko um, talking to dinosaurs uh, about, you know, what they may have gone through seemed, seemed silly, I guess. And that, that, that did hurt my score. Like, I, I think this is a good song, a bunch, a bunch great songs, but I, I think that did have an effect on me is that I, I, I kind of linked it, to uh, Peter Gabriel and Biko in particular. And then it comes off silly when you compare it to that subject.
2: Well, and I think in general too, like you were kind of mentioned Peter Gabriel, I think Paul Simon was really deep into a lot of those African root kind of things as well. I think he did a kind of record around that. Um, But like I saw the soul cages tour, um, like his second solo record. And he brought this guy called Vinks out at the time that was an African drummer and vocalist. And so he was already kind of, you know, I think he was thinking a lot of that stuff or he may have even kind of listened to a lot of that music um, when he was making this record um, because he already had those roots kind of going on in his head.
0: Yeah. Soul cages, uh, I think that was a third one. Wasn't it? I thought nothing like the sun was second one.
2: Possibly. Yeah, I think that might've been second. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The, my one my one note that I've got, got on here is I tried really hard to hear where Andy is on this song.
2: <laughs> That's what I was saying. The band is not so much in this song.
0: No. Um,
2: no. Yeah, I, I think that this was one like, I'm the lead singer of the band. I'm going to do what I want to do, and you guys can just follow along. Which right. you heard that in the documentary. There was a lot of that like, you know you know, he was doing what he wanted. He brought stuff to them and said, Hey, this is what's going to happen. And you can figure out what you're going to do around this.
0: Right. All right. Well, this is my two Wayne, your score.
1: Also a two.
2: All right. Two unanimous.
0: (laughs) All right. Uh, Looking at listener score. So Joe Kelly and our buddy, John Lamoureux gave both gave this a six.
2: I. Did they? Did they listen to the record?
0: <laughs> I, I I think so. I think I think so because some of their other scores uh, make sense, but it doesn't make sense for this. So, um, all right, next song is "Oh My God." What do you guys have to say about this? Is this uh, is this another predominantly sting song? Because strong oh, vocals on this one. Um, and again, I have a hard time hearing Andy on this. Stewart's on it. I can tell Stewart's on it. There's some there's some good drumming on this one, but um, yeah, poor Andy. We'll we'll talk about Andy a little bit more here as we well, go.
2: Well, I through. think that this song there is like. Um, roots of the band in it like um, but I also think like there's sounds on this song like and again I'm not sure what the instrumentations that they were on this song and how they kind of got some of the sounds but like I I don't think there's horns but there's there's parts that sound like horns or interpreted to be like horns but this song to me is very reminiscent of what they were doing on Bring on the Night and then that song off of Xeniana Medada, uh, when the world is
0: um Running right down. Now.
2: Yeah. It sounds a lot like those two songs, like that the groove and the vibe of it. So, you know, there's early police references to it, but I think again, Sting was like, Well, we've done that, but what can we do differently? And I just, you know, hear him from the musician and be like, I hear like these horn parts that were executed not with horns, and mm-hmm. he was already kind of thinking like that.
0: Yeah,
1: I liked it. It's super groovy. I I mean, I I liked, and I liked, and I read that it was uh, Sting playing the sax. Okay, so they were. Yeah, I thought he did pretty good. He gets a little scatty at the end, which I didn't think was was quite necessary. Had a little trouble ending it, but I loved the lyrics. I mean, this whole you know conversation with God, blaming you know, kind of it's almost like blaming him for the the loneliness and isolation that his character seemed to feel. But I thought it, but it, like I said, it didn't. It had this real jazzy, groovy feeling going on, which I do think is very reminiscent of, of the songs that that Mark referenced.
0: Yeah. Should we get some scores on "Oh My God"?
1: Yeah,
2: I got a yeah. You know, just because I have a lot more favorite songs on this record, so um, it's got a four. Um, you know, I, I think I caught it. Could have put it higher, but. I just have some other songs
0: that I really, really like on the record. Absolutely. Wayne, what's your score? I gave it a
1: six. I love the little callback to every little thing she does towards the end. I thought that was great. There you
0: go. Yeah. And this is my five. That leads us to next song, which is Mother. Mother. try to do the mother yeah um there you go
2: yeah this is the one song for me that like i don't know like what he was trying to do and how it fits on a record uh you know it's every record's got one of those right at least one
0: yeah be, be my girl sally yeah
2: so yeah. i never could really get into it and figure it out and it was definitely one of those that was like when the at that point, I don't even know if I had this on CD or cassette first, but it was definitely one that was a skip over. Um,
0: yeah, I was I was telling Wayne before we started, I was like, you know, I had this on cassette, and I, I love every song on side two, and I enjoyed flipping it over, listening to Synchronicity 1, and then I would, depending on my mood, I would fast forward most of side A, definitely skipping through mother so I could get to synchronicity two and then do the process all over again of listening to side B.
2: Yeah. I think that's, a, that's how I listen to the rest as well.
0: <laughs> and, and I think we, so I didn't say this. So this is an Andy summer song. So all of the other songs with the exception of two songs are written entirely by, by sting. Um, but this song yeah this is this is the andy summers song and um so in an interview summer said it was so bizarre and weird compared to everything else that's why people pr- really liked it and i'm like mm, <laughs> n- n- no
2: not so much i no. don't think that's
1: the case
0: n- no yeah
2: yeah, I didn't know that. It was I, I for some reason because I probably never really wanted to recharge the song because I never liked it <laughs> uh, that Andy wrote that song. But um, yeah, it, and so I guess that was uh, Sting's way of saying, "Okay, I'm going to throw you a bone." Right. So yeah, it was my number. It was the I scored it a one.
0: Yep. And Wayne.
1: Oh, also, like I say, it has this circus kind of sound. <laughs> And the creepy clown voice, almost, and I, uh, I found it horrifyingly compelling. Like, I didn't really skip through it. I, I listened to it, and sometimes in just broad amazement, like, like Andy Summers really got one over. Like, okay, I only get one song. You Sting, watch this. I am going to sing it too. I don't, even, you know, I, it's just, it's just like a train wreck, and I, 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 had to listen through it. I listened to it the whole way. I never skipped it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And with this is my one as well. And then with all the home edition people. So there was only two people that scored it, uh, something other than a one. So Steve Howard gave it a two cause he doesn't like Miss Gredinko's, uh, apparently. And then, uh, Derek, uh, Caravoy, uh, scored it a three, which, um, uh, I'm worried about Derek right now.
2: Yeah. I don't know what would be, yeah. uh, <laughs> his other two choices
0: of, yeah, I'll 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 get to that. All right, next song <laughs> next song is Miss Gradinko. So I, I, I mentioned that there's there's a couple songs that are not Sting. So this is Stuart's bone, uh, a, a better bone than Andy's bone, though, right?
2: Yeah, well, and I really kind of like the uh, the picking stuff that uh, Andy's doing on this song. And again, you got Stewart's really tasteful drum playing going on uh, on this song, and. What do you guys know? Uh, that's interesting. Like, what was the Stewart put out a solo record, and I forget his very first one had a lot of sounds of like this song. Now that I know he wrote this song, can't think of that. I he see the album cover.
0: Yeah, he did a number of like jazz related. Both him and Andy both did more jazz related. Um, I know that I I had a friend who had the Andy Summers and Robert Fripp. Uh, collaboration that came. What was that?
1: His first solo album was The Rhythmatist
2: in nineteen. Yes, that's the one I was thinking of. Okay, um, because I could see that um, that album cover, and and so that makes a lot of sense because like a lot of the stuff that was on there has a lot of kind of the Miss Garnaco vibe to it. Um, I mean, it's a cool like if I was listening to it as a non-pop song and just you know take the melody and not really listen to the lyrics and listen to the groove and stuff like that it'd be a, a cool song you know
1: and well, I especially guess that's in why, the chorus yeah the chorus, and that, cool. you know and that's like, why, like, musically it has a lot of like uh, like cuz he went on to score films and if you when you when i listen to yeah. it I, there's a lot there's a lot of really cool like feelings and stuff that he gets going through different you know like i say his drumming is great on this and, and the guitar work is is Great, and it's it's creating this almost like it feels like a movie score in a lot of ways. It's just that the the verses seem to drag, but the chorus is super catchy and great. I just I couldn't. It's just the verse. Yeah, it's just
2: a, it's just a, the lyrics of what what's kind of going on, and you know that's why you know Sting <laughs> wrote Sting both right. of the lyrics to the great yeah. songs, um, but. You know, from but just a musical context, uh, I think like you said, it's it's really good. And I mean all three of these guys unequivocally had big jazz backgrounds too. I mean Sting was a big upright jazz player. So right. you know, they all had serious musical chops and, and multi uh musical chops. So I I think you can hear a lot of that in um in this song, but I think, you know, where it misses again is just like being able to write a killer verse, a good pre-chorus, a chorus and a bridge and take it back. And that just wasn't the forte of like Stuart and Andy is like writing a asymmetrical good pop song.
0: Yeah. Does anybody know who, who Miss Gradenko actually is?
1: Nah, I tried to, I I was, I had hoped it was somebody, uh, but I think it's just, I think the name is just a, to make it sound more Russian because this is the height of the cold war and the yeah. lyrics when you read them are very, uh, you know, kind are of,
0: you Russian
1: communist, I mean, it also had an Orwellian feel to it. Um, yeah. so, I mean, there were, it was interesting. It was an interesting idea. And I just don't think it got, it's too, it's almost too vague. Like I want to know, is this a Russian spy? I mean, who is she? What's going on? Tell me more Stuart Copeland.
0: There you go. All right, um, this is my three mark. Uh, this is also a
2: three for me. All Thank right, you. Wayne.
1: I three here too. Yeah,
0: we well, we met. Yeah, we met two of them all, now
2: that we uh, all across the board.
0: Uh, three actually, we said walking in your footsteps was a uh, was our two. two so yeah, all right, yeah. Uh, from the from the home edition, so uh, highest scores from from that group. <laughs> so Bud Verge gave it an eight.
3: <laughs> wow. 20,
0: it's Tom Hirsch Tom Hershey gave it a seven. So there you go. They're missing a lot of songs. Yeah, yeah we'll 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 get we'll get to that. All right. Uh next song, <laughs> synchronicity two. was a single uh this was what fourth single third single third single and uh was hit number nine on the mainstream rock chart uh peaked on the billboard hot 100 at 16 um guys realize that this won a grammy i did
2: best not know f- that but it's oh, one you? of my favorite songs um, best,
0: best rock performance by a duo or group with a vocal hmm. that's that's the grammy this is such a great song. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, that I'm not a big lyrics guy. Um, I mean, I'm more kind of melody, but not in, you know, as far as remembering lyrics to every song, but like, you know, this is one of, one of those songs, like, you know, I could know this from Bourbon family morning. I mean, that's just, that's the song that, you know, as soon as it comes on, like I know the first lyric of that song, it's just one of those that just stuck with me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wayne. Um, you know how I love predicting what what song you're going to to choose as your number one.
1: Yeah, this was it.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely, it's, absolutely.
1: It's so there's so much going on in it. Um, from and like it's it's told almost from the children's view at the and and it goes on. But even the people that they mention initially, you know, his wife and his mother. And then, but this guy's life and all this anxiety that's climbing up and some of the, and even finds a way to throw in some political shots with the, uh, the, uh, factory belches filth into the sky and he walks unhindered through the picket line. Doesn't ask why there's all this, but this guy's anxiety is rising at the whole time. I mean, he's in the, you know, the car ride home is a suicidal race. He gets into his driveway and he actually, the line is his eyeballs ache like, and all the time it's, this this monster is rising up out of a lake in Scotland. Yeah, just in tying into it, it's just I mean, and musically, how it's so dense, and the drumming and the guitar work on this are completely out of this world. Like they're all three at their best performance, and and then and then when you add in Sting's lyrics, this this song is just
2: well, there's just song. a lot of that unison bass and guitar stuff, those riffs that go on in this song. Um that are really really awesome to listen to um and the drumming is great on it and uh the beginning how it starts with the little vamp for a while um you know it's just a lot of good stuff to it
0: yep uh looking at the home edition listeners, so we've got this is top song for Tom Hershey, Dave Peterson, Steve Howard, Joe Royland, John Lamoureux, John nawada i probably just slaughtered his last name. And, um, this is, uh, Derek, who I've mentioned before and Joe Kelly's, uh, second favorite song. So cumulatively for the at home group, this is their number one song.
2: That's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. For us, uh, here, I'll just throw out the spoiler alert. This is our third favorite, but not by much. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we, uh, we finished this record. All right. Um, let's get some scores. So Wayne already said his, but yeah, this is my 10. And Mark?
2: This is my seven. Um, I could have probably flip-flopped this in Synchronicity 1 to give it another point higher, but um, um, I think a lot of it for me and in, in, in we're ranking somebody's songs is not only did they affect me time and place, I actually played a lot of these songs in a cover band in, in high school and played them out professionally at the same time. So there was a connection to like learning Stewart's parts that really affected me, I think. So I think that's a reason for some of my scores is just some deeper connection to the actual music. I gotcha. Absolutely.
0: All right. So, um, We're gonna flip the record over and here's every breath you take. Back to what you were saying, Mark, about uh, iconic MTV. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, this song got played like every 20 minutes, it felt like, on MTV.
1: And and not just for 1983 and 1984, but
0: 1986,
1: 1987, Right. This song, right. Just for, it just was everywhere. Well, Come God
2: going. knows how many people have sampled it and used it for other songs. And
1: um, that actually affected me. Every time it would start, the first thing that would roll through my mind is that, is that, uh, Biggie Smalls tribute that Puff Daddy right. did.
2: Exactly. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally forgot about that song.
2: But the, I think this, this song in particular for me what and, and the next one we're about to talk about, um, you know, as I started to really think about, songs and how they're kind of composed and put together and and how they can spiritually do something to you i think there was something that the police had always done it like if you really listen to roxanne and you listen to every little thing she does is magic and spirits material world um and don't stand so close to me they always have a way of keeping their verses down and then usually Stuart will flam a, a snare drum on four or something right before a chorus hits and then bam like the chorus just smacks you in the face and so they've always had that knack of like especially the songs that Sting wrote that happened to be big hit songs of really how to emotionally connect with you on a musical level as well as a lyrical level and so I think he did it here but in such a subtle way you know it was a different way of doing it um, I think that it's really simple what's going on with, you know, I don't even know if, you know, if Stewart played in the first verse or if that's like just a, I think he played a floor tom groove, but it may have been a drum machine doing some of that stuff as well. Um, but then when Sting goes really, really high in that middle section, it's, it doesn't get any more emotional than that. And I, I think that that was something that, you know, he was really starting to get into was like, minimalistic i think he talks about it on his record like he really wanted to go back and play with just the three of them and not have a lot of added stuff and find ways to play together but elevate the music by what they could do with just the three of them and and i think that there's a lot to be said for that and i think he really you know this song i mean look how big the song was and there's not a lot of stuff going on
0: yeah, it was huge. I didn't even I didn't even bring up all the the accolades. So, number one number one song on the Billboard Hot One Hundred, number one song on the Rock Tracks. Uh, this was Song of the Year for the Grammys. Keep keep in mind that this was nominated during the same time as all those Thriller uh, songs. So, um, and then they also won Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group. So they they not only got the best rock performance, but they also got the best pop performance by a duo or group. So uh, it was huge, just huge song. And I think that that had something to do with probably, I know my score, because if you would have asked me in 1983 or 1984 what my favorite song on the record was, I probably would have told you this song. Um but I think because I've heard it so often and so much that um, I don't necessarily need to hear it all the time, or I'm looking at looking again at the, at the the home edition scores and collectively this was their fifth favorite song. Um, and a bunch of people scored it fours and fives and one of them uh, is a friend. So I I texted them and said, so what's the deal with your score? (laughs) And they responded back, I'm sick of it. (laughs) So there you go.
2: Well, I I mean, I think that's a really good point in, in some ways, why people get turned off of so, so many different songs is because I think radio and MTV, I mean, even into the nineties songs were, played into the ground. I mean, you'd have radio stations playing songs 40, 50 times a day. And then if a song crossed over, it was on two stations, the pop and the rock channel 50 times a day. So, um, so I I could get how people could get burnout. And, you know, I I was, people probably were burnout on listening to all for you for two years. I mean, it was (laughs) the number one song for eight weeks and the number one song for all of 97. So, um, But I tried to really go in as a – with rating a lot of this stuff and just kind of listening to it as how I remembered and also listening to it as songwriter, musician of what the song – how the song affected me and and just the songwriting of it and not trying to listen to it as a commercial and, you know, how I got exposed or whatever.
0: Right. Yep. All right.
2: Where'd you have it, Wayne?
1: Ah, uh, this is a seven. I d- it did suffer from the overplayed because we're all roughly the same age. It was that that same period of time, and it was everywhere. I do think it's a great song, and I love. I know Sting had said something when he found out that it was played at a lot of weddings, that because the lyrics, you know, his response was, "I guess they're not reading the lyrics because the yeah. lyrics are from this overly obsessed, you know, ex-boyfriend stalker." But it has this soothing groove and the piano and the stand-up bass, and so it feels very comforting. But if you listen to it, it's 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 a stalker song. Yeah, he's he's stalking her, and 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 just the lines of like every smile you fake, every vow you break. It's just like, watch out. Yeah. Close the blind.
0: Yep. This this was my eight. All right. Next song, King of Pain. The second single? Second single. Yeah. Also was a big big song mainstream rock chart hit number one. Billboard Hot 100. hit number three. Um so yeah, this was this was everywhere. And um is it blasphemy to say this, Wayne, that I like Alanis Morissette's unplugged version of this song now more than I like the original?
1: Uh, it's uh, blasphemous seems like a strong word. I don't agree with you, but
0: yeah, I still love this version. But uh, I don't know. There's something about uh, Alanis, um singing this song that just, yeah, it's magical.
2: This, this is another good song, as far as like you know. This I went back and forth like between number one and number two for me on on these two songs, and um, again, like just songwriting wise from music standpoint you know just just the piano and that cowbell um and then the lyric and and how the song builds there was so much building and tension going on in this song and and how they add parts and um and how the all parts come together and then i think this might even i mean i i don't know i I could be corrected here but there's not too many we do it a lot in our band where you'll build out of a section and into another with like just a whole band kind of build. And they never really did that much and they did it in this mm-hmm. song. And it was really cool when they come out of that kind of breakdown section and then kick back into the course. Um, that was something that's not in a lot of their songs. Like it's not something, a go-to thing for them at all. Um, but such a strong song, great musical performance and, um, yeah, it, I definitely could have put this at number one, but um, I love this song
0: and so much imagery that I just go, "How is that a thing?" Like the the skeleton choking on a crust of bread.
1: I love my favorite one is uh, the flagpole rag and the wind won't stop. I mean, just yeah. just like say the, it works best, I think, because he had said something about it was about the the post breakup of his marriage. But I mean, those those very far away images and that's his soul, you know, the black cat caught on a, in a high tree top, you know, or even the little blacks, uh, there's a little black spot on the sun, today. something, these far away things that's where his soul is. It's separated from him. It's far away. And there's this, there's this desperation and longing. And like I say, those, not all of the references I think work, but most of them work exceedingly well. And for an awkward 14 year old, like I felt like the king of pain, and and the whole thing, and like I say, I love how it's, you know, I hope you'll, you know, he he's he's hoping, you know, very passive that sh- she'll end this reign. It's you know, com- compl- you know, complicit, but at the end of the day, it's he's just he's the king of pain. Yeah, I just this was this song was one of those ones like, um, Mark had said very personal. Um, so I, this is my second favorite song.
2: Yeah, yeah, I scored it a ten
0: yeah this is this is my nine um and there were there was uh, one person joe kelly who this was his top score and uh a couple people who also uh on the the home edition scored this really high um bunch of tens bunch of nines and collectively on the the home edition this was their third favorite song um all right next song is wrapped around your finger this is my favorite song on the record. Uh, I look forward to hearing this song when it comes around. Uh, this was the fourth single off the record. Um, I was kind of surprised by the charting position. So this was uh, number eight on the Billboard Hot 100 was the, the, um, the peak and number nine on the mainstream uh, rock chart. And I thought, I mean, this was played all the time. Like this was another MTV staple yeah, as well. Yeah, that video with,
1: was great with the that candles. Was a great video,
0: yeah. Oh yeah,
2: iconic. Well, I think I think why this song maybe didn't chart any higher because it kind of falls in. I mean, first of all, I I had it as my third favorite song. I had it as a nine, um, yeah. so I really love the song as well. I used to love playing this song. I mean, Stewart's playing is awesome on this great. song. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of that whole kind of reggae, but not reggae kind of feel lots of snare and hi-hat work and splash cymbals. Um, but again, it has one of those kind of cool build sections in the middle that they kind of really don't typically do. They really started just doing on this record. Um, but uh, I, I think that why it probably didn't chart as well is like, it doesn't sit in a ballad, but it doesn't sit in a, like an tempo. It's kind of, it's in this weird tempo. And I think it's also because of the feel of the song. Um, it's not like your typical reggae feel, but it's like a halftime. And so I think songs like that always have a hard time um, getting people behind it from like just a radio standpoint. Even when it got, got played that much, I think it just had such a different feel to it that you know people maybe just didn't get into it as much as like a
0: straight on ballad. Right. I can see that. It's not your typical pop song. Like you're the end. The chorus is just, I'll be wrapped around your finger.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's not a whole lot to the chorus either. So I get that. All right. Anything else on, uh, on wrapped around your finger?
1: Well, I love how the music, the tempo does change a little when the script gets flipped there at the end and the servant becomes master. Um, I thought that was great. This is one of those songs that makes you uh, open up a second window with Wikipedia uh, as you're looking at the lyrics, and uh, which is great. I, I love that part about it. I mean, all of these references in here, I mean, many, I had to look them up. Uh, I've always liked the song. I've always loved that end of it. I, the devil in the deep blue sea behind me. It's just, like I say, it's, it's, it's got a, a much more ominous tone than I think it gets, I think the, the the ring imagery and the you know the kind of the marriage imagery gets is not. I think it's much more sinister than than it appears on the surface.
0: Yeah. All right. I already said this was my top score, Wayne.
1: Uh, same as Mark. This is my third favorite song. It's a nine.
0: Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, from the home edition, so Bud, Virgin, Derek, Caravoy. Um, both both had this as their, their top song. Uh, collectively on the home edition, uh, this was their number two song. Alright. Uh next song, Tea in the Sahara. The
3: sky turned to black. Would he ever come back? They would climb a you They would pray to the moon, but he'd never return. So the sisters would burn As their eyes searched the land With their cups still full of sand Tea in the Sahara with you Tea in the Sahara with you
0: This is, I think this is a song that has divided the police fans. Cause if, if you talk about tea in the Sahara, um, people either really dig this song or really hate this song. I think, um, cause I'm looking at the, the home edition folks and there's a bunch of twos and threes on, on here. If, if I had to give... If this was a, a scale of 1 to 10, this would probably be a 9 for me. However, because there are so many other good songs on the, on the record, this gets a 6 for me. But I still love this song.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I like this song too. I think that... Um, personally, I, I think Sting got caught up in maybe writer's no man's land with this song where um, I think he was kind of had the walking on the moon kind of vibe in, in some of it, but I think he was also trying to go somewhere to where he would have went on dream of Blue turtles. um, And he was trying to get there, but he still had to deal with Andy and Stuart being part of this song. And so um, (laughs) I I think that it, it didn't, if you, if you sat down with him and he was in a conversation with us, I would, I would gather that he would probably say that that song probably didn't go recorded-wise what his vision was probably for that song. Because yeah. um, it, it's almost like the next two songs we're about to talk about, um, they kind of have split personalities in some respects. Like the verse is kind of in one, it sounds like one song, and then the the chorus sounds like another song. And it's not usually, you know, obviously you're going to have a, uplifting and the chorus is going to go somewhere, but you could almost build a whole song around the verse and a whole song around the chorus of both T and the Sahara and murdered by numbers where, and that's kind of where I think there was some conflict going on internally with the band on these two songs.
0: Have you guys uh, listened to the, the version that he does on his um, bring on the night record?
2: I that came heard
0: from, that. came from the documentary that came out. Um, again, they were filming um, him rehearsing for a dream of the blue turtles, and they basically just put out a documentary and all these performances. And again, um, you know the the band that he surrounded himself were just these Heavy. top echelon. Oh yeah, they're top echelon know, jazz Marcellus
2: guys and Omar Hakim and.
0: Kenny Kirkland, I mean, yeah. um, you know, Janice Pendarvis and Dolette McDonald who were, you know, legends in the the, the backing vocal
2: uh, So where where can I hear this version?
0: Uh I don't know if it's on Spotify to be honest. Um I would have I, I know the the version is on YouTube. I'll send you I'll send you a link.
2: So is um, it is it supporting my theory that like this that's that version is completely different. Like he took the song where he wanted to go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's longer. It's like six and a half minutes long compared to this song, which is, I don't know, I guess it's about what four and a half.
2: Well, you know, like there was this whole controversy. I think it's even in the liner notes of the record of the making of this record. Like I think they were internally combusting, you know, as they were making this record. And so, Um, so when they recorded, you know, when, when we record, we try to put, um, Ryan and, uh, Jet, the bass player in the same room with me is where the drums are. And then their amps are in a different room. And just so there's like visual connection with each other. So we can feel a song and, and, and kind of talk it through. And even if we're working on a part, we're all in the same room working on it. And then lead singer is somewhere else. And then sometimes Andrew was either in that room with us or in another booth. Well, when they were recording this record, none of them, each of one of them were in a different room with no like sight lines. Uh Um, So it it, it was, I think it was a lot of, you know, controversy going on as they were trying to put this together and, and work through stuff. Uh, I mean, Sting puts a different spin on it and says that, you know, he likes to hear his bass and one of the bass cabinet and you can't put the bass cabinet in with the drums and and other stuff. But I I tend to think that there was more going on than that. Um, And so like with this song, I mean, I think it's a great song. I mean, there's, there's definitely old police vibe sound to it. And then there's the new kind of where Sting was trying to go in the uh, chorus, even melodically, um, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of melodies like he was singing in that chorus on, on police songs.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah. And, and so I I think he was musically trying to go somewhere else and just didn't get there with the band version of this song. But I love the song.
1: The chorus is like a, like a light desert wind. The chorus is awesome. He gets uh, my, and I think one of my theories is, is that, you know, when you're trying to tell someone else's story, because this is a story from a, from a book, you're going to, you're, you're going to lose some of your license, your, your creative license. And the chorus or the verses got to June, swoon, spoon, moon, but, but the, the chorus is, is like I say, it's a gentle desert wind. It's, it's, I could hear, I could listen to him sing that chorus all day long.
2: Well, it's such a different sounding song, right? He, melodically he goes to a different space. He gets the guys to do something different Um, but that verse is kind of back down in that kind of walking on the moon with the bass and, and, and just in that kind of vibe. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to listen to this other version, how he treated it with that dream of the terrorist band. Yeah. But it was, uh, I rated it as a six.
0: Gotcha. I'm matching your six and Wayne a four. All right. and, Technically, if you have the record version, this is it. But um, I decided we're going to go the record that I remember because I bought the cassette tape originally and also have the CD version. So we're going to wrap this up with talking about Murder by Numbers.
3: Once that you've decided on a killing First you make a stone of your heart and if you find that your hands are still willing, then you can turn a murder into art. There really isn't any need for bloodshed. You just do it with a little more finesse. If you can slip by tablet,
0: And uh one last thing I wanted to throw out there for tea in the Sahara. So um we had one person from the home edition rated as high as a ten. That would be Joe Royland. And uh he said Um it's all about the atmosphere. This one kind of shows where Sting was gonna go on his solo output. There you go. Which just solidifies what you were just what you were just saying, Mark. All right, what do we have on "Murder by Numbers"? Is this is this pointed at anyone in the band? <laughs> I don't,
1: I don't think so. I, I mean the, the I lyrics, don't know
0: either. I yeah, s- the
1: lyrics are are morose, but so well done. But I love what I love about this one is the music. It sounds like a Rat Pack, Frank Sinatra type jazzy little number. Like you see this being played in a smoky nightclub. But like so, the I just love the contradiction. The lyrics just don't match this the music, you know, the song at all. But I, I but they're but each are both really well done.
2: I wonder it would be interesting to find out if there is a way to find out when this song was recorded in the record process, because I could see this being the last song on a record, because like there's elements to me that it sounds like hey, guys, we just finished this. Let's have some fun. You know, when you get into that swing and chorus swing like you're talking about, it sounds like them just playing some jazz like the just like the three of them you know, might do in a jazz gig where they came from. And so it almost like, hey, guys, let's just have some fun on this. We finished the record. We got this last song. You know, let's just kind of go and, you know, not put any pressure and just, you know, just play how we would play. And that's what it sounds like to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Looking at the, the home edition, so we had a couple high higher scores for this one. So Bud Verge gave it a 10. Uh, Joe, again, gave it a 9. And Tom Hershey gave it an 8. So there were some high scores for, for this. Wasn't enough to crack their their top five, and it's not enough. Our scores are not enough to, to crack our top five either. Uh, this was my four. Wayne?
1: This was an eight. I, I like the dark stuff. And the jazz stuff.
0: Yes, you do. All right. And Mark, what was your score? Yeah,
2: this was my five.
0: All right. And, um, so this is it as far as the, uh, studio work for, for the police, unless you want to call the, uh, don't stand so close to me. 86 version that is on their greatest hits, which I mean, come on, let's be honest. It that was a throwaway song. Um, So
2: what what do you guys think? Like, you know, if um, if Sting could have like dealt with being in the band and having those guys, like, you feel like um, he would have been able to write because, like, even at that point when he went off and started doing his solo stuff, it did get airplay, but it was nothing like what he was able to do with them. You know, there wasn't like super smash radio songs, even though he had, you know, songs on soul cages and, um, 10 summer's tale and, and, um, during blue turtles, but nothing to the success ratio of these songs. But do you think that, um, that he could have had that success if he would have still stayed in the formula with the police, if he could have dealt with like being in those restraints?
0: I honestly think that, that being the 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 most revered person of his generation was never something that he cared about and I think that that he wanted to be in the conversation but I think creatively um, I think that he just wanted that control,
1: artist, control.
0: <laughs> artistic control to do whatever whatever he felt. Was on a whim. I mean, those the look the the first couple Sting solo records, um, so Dream of the Blue Turtles and um, Nothing Like the Sun. Um, I still pull those out. Uh, I th- I still think that they're fantastic records. Um, and but he, you know, you brought up the Ten Summoner's Tales. He did some interesting stuff on that, but it wasn't with the same band that you know, he put together for dream of the blue turtles. I well, mean, I, th- I think that he just wanted to do whatever the crap he wanted to do. And right. that's, he just followed his own whim. Some, some of the times it works. Some of the times it's with Shaggy.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think that, I mean, the band, I mean, I saw so many concerts with the band that he put together, starting with the soul cages tour. Yeah. Um, Cause that was, Dominic Miller, um, David Sanchez and Vinnie Caliuto. Um, and that was just a freaking amazing band. And I would just go just to watch the, the live shows and the interaction because that's what he wanted to do. You know, he wanted to have these musicians around him to push him to different things. You know, I think with playing with Andy and Stewart for so many years that they were great, but I think he wanted to do, these different things. I mean, there's right. two, some of the songs on 10 summers tales, you know, Vinnie's playing all these grooves that are in like six, four and seven, four on some of those songs. Um, and I think Stewart could have done that, but I think that it's just, he was able to do it in a way where the average listener doesn't really know that because they're not listening for that. But if the music, the music person is listening go, wow, that's a cool way to do an odd time signature without drawing people off. Right. But I think you know you know, you have bands that are around and 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 can keep putting out records and making stuff and that's tangible. And I, I think that if he wasn't wanting to be like you say, the creative and push the boundaries, um, you know, I think they could have had an, a run of several more years because you know, what, what else was going on at that point? You know, like you said, Michael Jackson with Driller, but I think people were still looking for bands at that point and, and, and bands doing things. And so, you know, you, I guess you started getting into Van Halen and some of the bigger rock bands at that time. But um, I, I think even from this record, if he would have wrote more songs along the synchronicity songs and the King of pain songs that they definitely, cause I was I mean, Shea was their, that was their final big thing. Like they, you know, they played arenas. I mean, I saw them at the Omni. Um, But I I think that they could have gotten to the level that you two got to, if they would have continued. But like you said, I don't think he really wanted that. I think he got to the point where he wanted to. And now he just wanted focused on making the music that he wanted to make.
0: All right. Yeah.
1: yeah I, I definitely don't think he was the, he doesn't strike me as the kind of person who could write the same thing I wrote before. Cause I know it'll, it'll, it'll be a single and it'll get, you know, even if it was to push a bigger agenda, he seems like he's like, he came into being sting. I mean, like I say, when you only have one name, you're, you're big time and there's, there there's no way that that isn't, change who you are and, and what you and your vision. Like he didn't want to, he didn't want anybody to have any input. I I'm going to assume like, I'm sure he loves Stuart and Andy, but he didn't, he wasn't interested any longer in what their input on these songs was.
2: No, not at all. And I think you could hear that on this record.
0: We're talking about you mother. (laughs) Um, Yeah. All right. Well, this is usually the part where I go, did we cover everything? Did we miss anything?
1: Well, there, you're going to always miss something with the police. Like I say, I, I was a fan of theirs in the eighties. Um, I would say a past casual, but when I got the box set, whenever that was released, I probably listened to that for a month straight without anything else. And hearing the B sides and the non album singles and um, this, you could, there's just so much in this band that you'll it's almost, I feel like sometimes even just listening to it and looking at the lyrics, I got stuff out of it this time that I hadn't before. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was such a big part of my growing up and inspiration and uh, you know, I wish they would have been around a little bit longer to appreciate. Like I said, I was at their peak. I was just 13. So um,
0: I think it would have been cool to kind of hear more of their music for a longer time. So any guesses what our number one song is, Mark? Uh, probably King of Pain. So we actually have a tie for our top song with a, with an average score of 9.66. King of Pain is tied with Wrapped Around Your Finger. And then we've got Synchronicity 2, not too far behind that at a 9.33. And, that, uh, and then... Every breath you take is our fourth top song, eight point six six average score, and then Synchronicity One, that is our our fifth. Uh, looking over at the home edition, so their top song was Synchronicity Two, nine point seven seven average score. Uh, our top fives are the same, uh, essentially the the, the same. Five top songs, however, their scores are um, just a little bit different than ours. So, wrapped around your finger was two, uh, King of Pain three, Synchronicity one was four, and then uh, every breath you take was was our fifth. So, Wayne, what do you think about all of, all those scores? Did did we do we get it right? Got the top five songs?
1: Yeah, this is a this is album this album stacked. Um, besides the one. Fu from Andy Summers. Um, everything has has its place. Is at least good. If, if some of them just rise to the level of great.
2: We we got it pretty we pretty pretty nailed it. I think that uh, um, King of Pain, wrapped around your finger, every breath you take, Synchronicity 2, I think those were all in ours, and I think those really were the songs that put these guys on the map with this record.
0: Right. Absolutely. T- to, total, totally agree with that, Mark, as well. All right. Well, this was fun. Thank you, Mark, so much for joining us. I appreciate it,
2: guys. It was a blast.
0: Yeah. So so, so, tell all of our listeners where they can find all the happenings of uh, Sister Hazel. Where can they find everything and the GoFundMe and all that good stuff?
2: You can definitely go to our webpage. It's always the best source for all information, uh, sisterhazel.com. We have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page and Twitter page. Um, you can get to all of those links from the website. Um, always lots of going on in our world. So check in, say hi, we'll be doing a bunch of hopefully more virtual stuff here in the future and hopefully be able to see you guys soon. Once we can get back out and play live shows.
0: Absolutely. All right. Um, so last question that I throw to all of our, all of our, um, Yes. So who who do you know that I don't know that should come on our podcast to talk about one of their favorite records?
2: Hmm. That's a tough question. Someone that you might not know that I know. Yeah. Um, um what about David Ryan Harris? I don't know him. Uh he's his own solo act, but he also has been playing guitar with um John Mayer for years. And oh, cool. um, he's been on a bunch of rock boats. He's in, from Atlanta. He now lives out in California. Um, you should go check him out, check out his webpage, see his music. But um, yeah, David's into all kinds of different things. So uh, singer, songwriter, solo guy, band guy, guitar player for Mayer.
0: Um, check him out. Very cool. All right. Well, as a reminder, you can find all of our old episodes by going to recordsrevisitedpodcast.com. Find all of our happenings on all of our socials. Go to Twitter at Podcast Record, Records Wayne Mancy Instagram. Just search for Records Revisited Podcast. And, of course, you can find all of our episodes on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, etc., and um since we're doing things differently for this episode we're so we're going to fade out with a snippet of a cover of synchronicity 2 by the chicago-based police cover band that's called invisible sun but first we got to do our typical outro so here we go so thanks for listening please go support the arts this is where i would say go to a live show but you know the drill on this uh definitely go support your your favorite musicians um, check out their their websites go go buy a t-shirt of the band buy a record yeah buy a record support your musicians we are records revisited and we are out, out. out.